was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, skags. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. A late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we dive in the field. Hello, Cats and Kittens. I'm coming to you again on a Monday evening to talk about the latest episode of Bad Faith. I'm your host, Brad and Joy Gray, and this is The Debrief. We're also filming while there, or recording rather, while there is some breaking news. I'm sure you've probably heard by now that Trump's compound was just raided uh, by the FBI. I've been watching Fox News coverage. Steve Bannon's on the line right now, so I'm going to transition into a little bit of that before we get into it this evening. Okay, go ahead. I hate to cut you off, Steve. We have uh, we have more information coming in as we speak, so I got to get to that. Steve, it's great to hear from you tonight. Thank you for your time. All right, this is a Fox News alert. Donald Trump said tonight his Mar-a-Lago home is under siege by FBI. Agents, a source tells Fox News that agents are indiscriminately removing items from the residence. We're also learning the president's son, Eric Trump, spoke to our own Brian Kilmeade and told him as many as 30 agents raided the former president's Palm Beach home. So Fox's Mike Emanuel is joining us again with the absolute latest. Mike. Will, good evening. Sources familiar tell Fox News this FBI raid of former President Trump's Palm Beach home is related to the taking of potential classified information from the White House upon leaving office January 20th of last year. The National Archives says there were 15 boxes that contained what it believed to be presidential records, noting they must be preserved. A source familiar tells Fox FBI agents went to Mar-a-Lago looking in every single office in the president's safe and grabbed documents in boxes without reviewing them there on property. The source telling Fox they took boxes and documents to review once they left Mar-a-Lago and were told they were not being judicious about what they took. Fox has learned former President Trump was actually at Trump Tower in New York City when he learned the raid was taking place in Florida. The former president saying in his public statement, they broke his safe. And obviously he's quite upset with the raid taking place there today. Will? All right, Mike. Uh, thank you there for the latest. So as you've heard tonight, now the president of the United States, the former president of the United States home in Mar-a-Lago has been raided by FBI agents, upwards of 30 agents, broke into a safe, took boxes of documents away, not discovering them, not going through them on premises, but taking them away for further analysis. We do not have information at this time as to why, what is the legal or evidentiary basis as to what is the investigation and the raid into Donald Trump. But for now, we turn to Fox's Shannon Bream for a legal analysis of the situation unfolding tonight. Uh, Shannon, great to have you with me. Um, let's take this from a legal perspective as you look at what's happened and what has occurred. What's your takeaway? Well, I can't wait to see the warrant. I think everybody wants to know the underpinnings of this, as you've talked about on the show. And, Will, you are a gifted lawyer and know this just as well as anybody. Um, you've talked us through what would happen. I mean, this doesn't just happen overnight. You go through a judge. There is an internal decision-making process uh, at the DOJ, at the FBI, in which um, people have to talk over the possibilities of what could happen here. 
And, you know, it's so rare because there's never been an indictment of a former president, a criminal indictment of a former president. And who knows whether we'll get to that place. Um, but this is part of a case. This is part of what you would do is go get information and go get things that you would claim are evidence. Um, it's interesting if that, as what Laura Trump has been saying, um, I'd be interested to see if the DOJ and FBI also believe, um, as she said, he's been cooperating. He's been working with them. Um, they may likely have, have suggested otherwise. They may believe otherwise because to go to a judge and get the underpinnings that you need for this warrant to have someone sign off on, um, they probably had to make some kind of allegation. I would guess that the president has not been cooperating with them, at least not in their definition of cooperation. Um, but it calls to mind a lot of these um, other raids that you've talked about, um, the, you know, the arrest of, um, you know, Steve Navarro and, and some of the others and, and how, or excuse me, Peter Navarro, how some of these. All right. <clears throat> so they've been saying a lot about how this is like a banana republic. They've been going on a lot about the inconsistency or the hypocrisy when you compare uh, how they've covered or approached the Hunter laptop stuff. There's been a lot of equivalencies drawn between, you know, why don't the Democrats care about the obvious criminal activity from Hunter Biden when they're doing this? Uh, many people <clears throat> are now saying they don't like the FBI and they want it abolished, including Candace Owens. So we have a lot of abolitionists out here, newly minted in these here streets. And it's interesting. I see someone in the chat saying that, <clears throat> if anything, this raid is going to drive up Republican turnout, which, you know, would be an interesting outcome, especially since it does seem like Democrats are getting a little bit of relief uh, in the form of some some wins. Uh, as you heard on today's episode, many people, uh, you know, see that Kansas abortion win as an indication that Democrats aren't going to flail quite as badly as they thought in the fall, that the abortion issue really does drive Democratic turnout, um, that there's a lot uh, of Republicans who are, you know, if, if abortions on the ballot are going to be inclined toward voting in a way that will protect the right to choose, all of those kinds of things, the general ballot, a Republican Democrat not being as bad as you would expect in a midterm year with a sitting Democratic president, all these other kinds of things. It would be interesting if this had uh, the opposite effect. There is the implication here on Fox News that this is a witch hunt, although you heard the guest here, Shannon Bream, this attorney, saying that this likely precedes a criminal indictment, which would be unprecedented. They're talking a lot about how Hillary Clinton took a number of things from the White House that she wasn't supposed to take, but it didn't result in this kind of a raid. And I'm not sure if you heard, but Donald Trump was not here for this. He was in uh, New York. Uh, and they had Laura Trump earlier on saying that she had spoken to the former president and that he was upset and surprised by this outcome. So not to commandeer this <clears throat> conversation into being about that, but I suspected that it might be on some folks' minds. So I figured since I was watching the Fox News coverage, curious about how they were going to be handling this little tidbit of information, you might be interested as well. But let's get to the questions. Raya Doe, what's on your mind this evening? Hi, Brie. How are you? I'm doing well. What are you thinking uh, about? You guys have the weirdest country down there <laughs> with what's going on with, like, that breaking news. That's wild. I hadn't seen that because I try to avoid <laughs> as much of American politics during the day as I can. But anyways. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Yikes. <laughs> um, interested to see how that turns out. I feel like this... I mean, I think it was your last debrief we were talking about, but you're more worried about Ron DeSantis than Trump. And this honestly feels like the establishment on both Republicans and Democrats are not willing to let him 
get back to power because he's not controllable enough. But well, that's interesting. Yeah. That's what this the I think Laura Trump kept saying. <clears throat> you know, this is all about you know suppressing Trump because it's not just the Democrats. She said this several times. It's not just the Democrats that don't like Trump. It's the establishment Republicans, the establishment Republicans. So it really does feel like he's trying to commandeer that particular outsider lane that was so successful for him in 2016. Yeah, uh, so, so strange to me. Um, yeah, we're, yeah. Anyways, I um, actually called in for a different topic entirely. Yeah, of course. Um, I just want to say thank you for doing a climate episode. Um, I was devastated to miss the call in for that one, but thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, one of your callers, when they called in, was talking about like the Canadian trucker protest in relation to that and calling it the biggest labor movement, which is not. So I appreciate you pushing back on that. But that was something that I've been kind of interested in is that there's a book called Climate Change is a Class War by Matt T. Huber. And um, I think it'd be a really interesting kind of follow up episode if you're interested in doing that, because he kind of brings together um, union and labor movements with climate movements. But with that caller who called in about the Canadian trucker protest and calling that like a labor movement and a populist movement is really interesting to me because, I mean, I'm Canadian. But the way that the trucker protest was kind of made use of populist type movements and like use the rhetoric of labor without actually being about labor mm. is something that I think is kind of the opposite direction of where like a lot of labor sentiments and um, union sentiments could either be combined with the climate movement to create a very interesting kind of mass mobilization that could be very popular or could be very um, productive and good for the left, or it could be very much turned into a division where people who are more traditional labor and union could be very much turned against climate type movements. So anyways, that's a long way of saying I would highly recommend um, having Matt Huber on as a guest to discuss climate change as well as class war and that kind of intersection there. All right, Matt Huber, note taken in the uh, debrief Slack. Thank you so much for calling in with that, Raya. Amazing. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. Uh, Isaac, you're up. What's on your mind this evening? Uh, can you hear me? I can. Loud and clear. Okay. Sweet. Okay, I'm on new headphones, and I'm, yeah, last time I called in, I was on an actual mic. Um... Just a couple silly quick things. Uh, first of all, since you always open this way, if we're cats and kittens, what does that make you? Uh, I'm old dog. <laughs> old dog? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know why I say that. I don't know what time machine I stepped out of that makes me say things frequently that a 80-year-old uh, person would say. Uh, but I guess you know I'm I'm a member of the of the proletariat just like everybody else. We're all cats and kittens, huh? I'm not trying to distinguish myself, even if I am a dog person. Oh, oh, same. I, although I was hoping that it it would be more like you're the crazy cat lady from The Simpsons. <laughs> uh, too allergic, but I get I get the sense. Too allergic. Uh, <laughs> well, we're you're surrounded by us. Um. 
then about today's episode, I just wanted to say thank you for kind of pushing back against the, like, we don't really know what's going on with inflation rhetoric. Because mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm frustrated by that all the time. Like, Jerome Powell, I don't know if they get too into kind of the mathematized version of what's going on but him coming out and being like we don't really understand inflation when i think that most of us have an instinct about what happens yeah it, i mean it does it does frustrate me i mean like i understand to the extent that it's supply tri- uh, supply side driven you can't snap your fingers and make all these things happen overnight but that was a much better excuse eight months into covid not two years later mm-hmm. when it doesn't seem as like much of anything has been done to start to manufacture the kinds of things that we're still having deficits of. We've seen this, the newest, you know, supply side screw up is with the monkeypox vaccine where there were, you know, what, 1.1 million doses sitting in a factory in Europe that just didn't get here in time. And the, you know, factory was, wasn't improved by the FDA in time, even though we'd known for a couple of months that monkeypox cases were, uh, popping up in the United States. And there's all of these things, this deficit, and I understand that that's not like an inflation issue. But there are all of these supply issues that keep happening. And we understand that this is a kind of a post-COVID inflation, like a COVID-tethered inflation. And yet there's no abs- absolutely no discussion of the obvious effect that the vaccine had on the supply chain. And uh, Sorry, that the, the, uh, disease, the virus had on the supply chain. And everything in the world about how somehow the $1,600 checks are the $1,400 checks are the be-all, end-all of this. And it's frustrating because the Republicans are very lockstep about blaming everything on spending. That's in keeping with their narrative. The obvious pushback is to talk about, well, we would literally just talk about inflation and supply and demand and sound like a serious person and not just some leftist who wants to give away money. Then talk about the supply side issues. And it did feel like even Taiwan was a great opportunity to talk about, okay, Nancy Pelosi shenanigans aside, this is an, a wonderful opportunity to talk about why we, why there's a bipartisan support for the CHIPS bill and how invest the country is for national security reasons and commerce reasons to be able to manufacture some of the stuff at home. The baby formula crisis was another one of these things. Okay, you messed up. Are there new you know, factories being Put up? Are we going to use these emergency powers to do these World War II style ramp ups the way we've been talking about since time immemorial? No. And it, it's just, it's when you have someone like Fidel Kaboob come on and you have someone like Richard Wolf come on and they explain it in these very practical, real terms. You know, inflation is when prices go up and there are people who decide what the prices are. And there are policies like anti monopoly, you know, uh, policies that can affect their ability to price gouge and all these other kinds of things. And in Fidel Kaboob talking about how it's driven by these specific sectors. And then like no policy attending to that, to those factors. You know, I, I you know, I, 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 you know, I, I refuse to believe that we, it's just all of these vibes. And I refuse to kind of accept right. that, you know, that we have to use the bluntest in, uh, instruments in the world to address these things. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, a lot of it, and it's probably still tied to just the neoliberalism of it all. It just comes off as magical thinking where like we saw the uh, fossil fuel industries just like increase their prices massively. Like we're seeing 
housing prices go up and they're like, oh no, when people don't want them, they'll just go back down. But like what happened after the 2008 uh, crisis with housing, like prices are way above what they were then. And I don't think that they're going back down to those prices. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, are we going to build new houses? No. I mean, and again, I'm not, like, I'm sensitive to the fact that there are, the supply chain is causing housing costs to go up and all of those kinds of things, you know, totally. But that is not even a part of the conversation. None of, none of that is a part of the conversation anymore. And that's the part that gets you that, you know, kind of populist grist too. People are mad. Like when I'm on rising, when I know I'm talking to an audience that's more politically mixed, a hundred percent, you know, I might lean a little off some of the broad redistributive programs that I support and lean a little bit on into, hey, it was a bipartisan decision to move so many of these jobs overseas that are causing all these problems right now. And it's frustrating the Democratic Party doesn't try to reclaim any of its labor base by doing the same. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's all a mess, and there's no uh, opportunity for open conversation about it. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to, you know, um, beat up on Matt or anything. I do think that he is, you know, he was incredibly clarifying, and I really appreciate him you know, talking through a lot of the political posture of the last week or so that I hadn't been following as closely. Um, and, of course, you know, obviously since we recorded, we have had a whole other media cycle of people very upset with Bernie Sanders for attempting to um, – attached these amendments that would have put a lot of the good stuff and build back better, all of the human infrastructure stuff back in and a whole world of big brained experts like Matt Iglesias and the rest of the neolib crew saying that this is self-defeating and stupid. I saw a bunch of folks coming after uh, David Sirota and um, Adam McKay saying, I can't believe, you know, meeting David Sirota was the worst thing that ever happened to Adam McKay because they were critical of the climate provisions not going far enough and also being, you know, giveaway to all these oil companies who are celebrating the bill. You know, the, the really basic, obvious stuff. But, you know, I almost can't even blame them for not understanding the political posture when none of the mainstream news reports that this is the exact same situation that we had with the $15 minimum wage, where Bernie was put in the position of trying to put something back in with 60 votes that could have passed with 50 and then having the, you know, if it had never been taken out in the first place and, you know, so much stuff being taken out because of the parliamentarian, principally the, yeah. you know, the insulin, um, lowering the cost of insulin. And it's like, that is like such a big point. When I'm, when I'm explaining to people who think I'm being overly cynical about the Democratic Party, I have found explaining what happened with the $15 minimum wage to be incredibly useful and convincing folks. I was just at a wedding, you know, a month or so ago. And I had all of these people, you know, telling me, oh, Brianna, you're going too far, da, 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 da. But as when you walk them through that, when you walk through the posture of there was stuff in the bill that Chuck Schumer in his leadership capacity took out on advice of a parliamentarian who he could have ignored, which turned a, a 50 plus one vote into a 60 vote so that a majority of Democrats or every Democrat can still vote for this thing. And have the excuse that it, it couldn't get back in because you couldn't get Republican support. Like, that really changes the dynamic and helps people to understand how procedurally they're given so much cover um, for being antagonists to the interest of working people. But it is exhausting that we're in this exact same place that we were a year ago, a little over a year ago. Yeah. I um, You mentioned, I want to say, I don't know, 
in a debrief like maybe two or three ago uh oh yeah it was the finkelstein one um that like the pod save america people were not your crowd Mm -hmm. and not your legal podcasts Mm -hmm. um what what are your legal podcasts um i do listen to five four from time to time i I confess i mean like I don't like to think about the law. There was a reason I stopped being a lawyer. So I, I choose not to. And I do listen to Pod Save America for informational reasons. Like, you know, I listen to a lot of things that I don't agree with because I wanted, I'm like obviously sitting here watching Fox News coverage of this raid and not MSNBC's right. coverage of this raid, not because of a political preference, but because honestly, I can learn nothing from MSNBC's coverage of the raid that I can't get from clicking through Twitter and all of the, you know, people that I follow, but I definitely can get a comms perspective on what the right-wing messaging or the conservative messaging is going to be from watching Fox. So I do watch, I do listen to Podsave, but I don't, you know, consume the broader universe of crooked media podcasts because there's only so much time in the world and I basically just need the main line on various events. And they have so freaking many podcasts. There are um, a lot. And they, they, yeah, they just, it keeps multiplying. Um, the reason I asked about that is like five to four actually just did an interview with Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. How and was it? Did you, it, it was good, but um, I'm bringing it up because they actually, uh, who, Peter, I think he actually asked her directly, like, you know, here we are talking about, what's going on with Roe v. Wade and how uh, the Democrats kind of dropped the ball. So can we talk about the Democrats? And she just shut him down entirely. Really? Yes. Just, just hard line, just moving on. We are, I think that actually when he said, should we talk about that? She said, Nope. And then like moved on to the next thing. Wow. Okay. Definitely going to go and listen to that episode and potentially clip it. That's the thing about podcasts too. Like politicians go on there and there are a lot of great moments from podcasts that should be going more viral, but because of the format and how difficult it is to clip content, no one does it. And it's like, I guess not as interesting to play on TV. So nobody clips and talks about it, but I have learned, you know, I have had some, you know, gotten some serious insight from hearing people give these, Interviews where I think because it's also because it's a podcast and they're not on camera, they disclose more than they would ordinarily. They're not on their P's and Q's and, you know, not as vigilant as they would be if they were on MSNBC. I remember, Madison Cawthorn. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Nancy Pelosi gave one to Kara Swisher in 2020. That was, I forget even what the subject was, but it was also intense. I mean, thank you for flagging that because I'm not above uh, talking about other people's podcast content. Yeah, it was, it was wild. Um, just, um, final thing, sort of the Trump stuff, mm-hmm. since you brought that up, do you think that there's actually any chance of anything happening? Cause they're like raiding Mar-a-Lago, but I thought that they already had like found that he had taken a bunch of boxes of stuff to Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> like, yeah, well the, the line that the people on Fox seem to have so far is that Trump was cooperating and Therefore, this is really unnecessary and unprecedented and a kind of antagoniza- antagonization of a former president that's unprecedented. They keep using the words banana republic. They're, they see this as um, an effort to harass him, which, you know, we'll see what comes out. But, I mean, it's 
it's possible. I think you're right. These this these boxes weren't an unknown unknown. People who made points about Hillary Clinton taking things that she wasn't supposed to take from the White House, you know, if there is a parallel to be drawn there, it'll be interesting to see it because obviously no one would behave this way toward her. I mean, she wasn't president also, but, you know. Right. Um, oh, Trump's saying something. These are dark times for our nation. Let's see. In 2024, especially based on recent polls. Oh, they're not reading it. There's a dark times for our nation. It's my beautiful home, Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, has been oh rated. Uh, nothing like this has ever happened to the President of the United States before. Yeah. 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 Watergate didn't happen. I don't know. I mean, but reading. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Right. I mean, if it's if, yeah, it, the if it pays off, then it pays off. Mm-hmm. You know, if it pays off and they find something, then you know it'll pay off. But if this isn't earned. If I said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Democrats get themselves in trouble by charging more than they can prove. Uh, yeah, and also, did you say when you started it up that they had Steve Bannon on? Oh, yeah. The lineup that I saw before <laughs> I tuned into you guys was Laura Trump, Steve Bannon, that unknown lawyer. Now they have a former federal prosecutor named Francie Hakes giving her take. Wait, isn't isn't Bannon currently Under like investigation? <laughs> yeah, and like wanted for not appearing in court. Yeah, here look. Um <laughs> This is okay, grain of salt. This is from Mark Elias, who was part of the effort to get Matthew Ho off the ballot. He's a former Hillary Clinton lawyer, blah 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 blah. But uh he tweeted the media is missing the really, really big reason why the raid today is a potential blockbuster in American politics, and he has screen grabbed uh, U.S. code for concealment, removal, or mutilation generally that says uh, whoever having uh, the custody of any such record, proceeding, map, book, document, paper, or other thing willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, falsifies, or destroys the same shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than three years or both. And, and this is highlighted, shall forfeit his office and be disqualified from holding any office under the United States. And that's for Trump. Yes. Idea being it'll prevent him from running again. Good. I'm all for it. Although I, I, yeah, go ahead. I was, I I was just driving earlier and was behind a vehicle that said, uh, it had a bumper sticker that I think said MAGA is not going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the thing. It's like, is is DeSantis just going to do this? It's going to be MAGA without Trump. It's going to be MAGA that's more play. It's going to be more MAGA that's super mm. difficult to poke holes in. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a good thing that he's more polite, but I strongly feel otherwise. And Robbie has been making this point on Rising that, you know, um, he he tends to offload what would be the crazy Trump tweets to his comms woman, DeSantis does. So he just is smart enough to create a little distance between him and the crazy while still definitely fomenting the crazy and encouraging it. So, I don't know. Here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Also, he, as I understand it, like, can't communicate. Like, he can go out on a stage and, like, do whatever. But that's why you don't have the interviews with him or anything because he's, like, he can't talk to people. What do you mean? DeSantis, like, he's not a good, and he's not good at talking to people? 
yeah, just like interpersonal communication. He's just super awkward and can't mm -hmm. really do it. Well, look, they were um, they the Trump the sorry the the Biden people got mad last week. Karine Jean Pierre got mad last week when she was asked at a press conference. You know, do you think there's some correlation between Biden having his best ratings week in a really long time and him being in the basement because of COVID? And she acted all like she didn't know what she was talking about, and that was an unfair question. But, you know, this happened during the campaign, too, that he was in his basement because of COVID and he won an election. And maybe there's something to the idea that a lot of these folks do perfectly well when they're out of the spotlight because so much of the political energy is about team sports and vibes and not at all about the yeah. words or policies that are coming out of anybody's mouth. Yeah, I mean, 100%. Like, if you ask someone and they're like, I'm a conservative, and you're like, okay, what does that mean? They're going to be like, I vote Republican. But that's like, you know asking or finding out so if someone runs and it's like oh then you must play basketball because that's involved like they're it's not the same thing yeah. people just don't think about it um anyway last thing if you'll have it mm. very short just a recommendation mm. for you in your <laughs> free time and personal life and it's only 10 minutes a day weekly it's a podcast i think you would enjoy it okay the Cato Daily. The Cato Daily, like the Cato Institute? Yes. What is it about? It is, I, so it it's just a guy, I don't, I don't know, some, some dude who like interviews some expert who, and, and I think I saw people giving me thumbs down. I'm giving this recommendation because it is psychotic, but it also is interesting about how they kind of dance around different uh subjects and figure out what they're gonna say about things and it's one of the biggest like think tanks that's respected intellectuals but they it's the guy he just talks with people briefly who are experts in certain areas and one of the ones that they had recently was about like the baby food or the baby formula shortage mm -hmm. and he was like we haven't like an expert economist on to like talk about this and she's like yeah so the problem is um regulation and yeah. then yeah but I mean, that's what robbie but, says and, and that's what the thing i yes. really value actually being on with robbie because it is a daily reminder of what the go-to explanations are from the a very different political camp than i'm in and a very different you know, narrative context that I'm in, like, they're not not responding to stuff. They're not just ignoring stories that are uncomfortable for, for them from our perspective. They've got a cogent narrative that makes sense to them. And look, there, there is a, there's a regulatory story, right? Like it was the FDA's um, failure to uh, follow up on the whistleblower report from the Abbott labs that resulted in the two baby deaths that shut down the factories in the United States. And it was, uh, the FDA's failure to um, approve this new plant in Copenhagen uh, that got the monkeypox vaccines, that made the monkeypox vaccines, right? But my argument would be something along the lines of the massive defunding of the FDA, and perhaps there's some leadership failures, et cetera, and not just getting rid of the FDA and, like, hoping and praying that Abbott Labs just really cares about babies enough to poison them because we know that's not true. You're, well, that and did you see that they were sending out like full size uh, packages of baby formula based like if someone goes into CVS who just like turned 18 and gets like a pregnancy test 
they're like, oh, that's going to trigger us sending you yeah. an actual full-size thing of baby formula. Yeah, I saw that. That's absolutely yeah. nuts. But yeah, it, it's interesting. I don't know. I listen to it occasionally. And they they couch things in, like, I think all conservatives do this, but they, like, couch things and then give you like 75% truth with 25% of brain disease and then draw just a, an insane conclusion. Like they had a, when a lot of voting rights issues uh, were being discussed, they, they're like, they had a guy on who was like, no, like we need to make sure that people know that our uh, elections are secure and that's what we need to do and therefore we need to make it so black people cannot vote <laughs> it's like, I mean they'll say whoa. stuff like that and Democrats won't even like I don't know get behind DC statehood to get a couple extra congressional seats it's it's wild it's wild um, I, I look I'll take it you said it's 10 minutes it's only a 10 minute podcast that really highly recommends it to me also yeah it, I mean it me varies for the can... last few were 10 Okay. If I could get away with a 10-minute podcast, guys, please tell me if I can just do 10-minute podcasts, and if you would prefer it, and I would prefer it, <laughs> let's make that deal with each other, because <laughs> that sounds like quite the gig. All right. Thank you so much for calling in. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. You too, Isaac. All right, Bye. Anthony, what is on your mind? Well, hello. These uh, These crazy big, you know bills in i mean the name inflation reduction act i'm sorry i don't get invested in these situations anymore because i know there's nothing in there for me one i i don't believe anything would reduce inflation i don't i mean i don't think there's anything in there anyone in congress's worldview that would reduce inflation except maybe you know a couple of the crazy libertarians who i don't really agree with on much else but you know like massey and paul but anyway uh that's just the, the, you know the name face value i don't even want to call it what they call it because i don't think it's going to reduce inflation and i'm looking at c span and it says to address okay first off to address that's a funny verb like what is that to address okay mm -hmm. to address climate uh taxation healthcare I'm like, oh, I thought this was an inflation bill. I thought you were going to be like doing stuff with the Fed. Uh, anyway, and then the, they're voting on a part about immigration. When I looked at it on C-SPAN, I'm like, so this is just a big, they realize they've done nothing for two years and they're going to get, you know, shellacked and they're just trying to do whatever now. And it's like, uh, like the Affordable Care Act. They, it's not affordable, but you have to say it unless you want to say Obamacare. And uh, then let's, I talk about Build Back Better, uh, that the name of that, the phrase Build Back, like it's you've seen every leader from Australia, New Zealand, Canada, United Kingdom, wherever else using it. And so they all got it from the same place. And uh, the syntax of it doesn't even make sense. When have you ever said build back anything like I don't. I don't, I would say building back, like, I don't know, but not, it's, it's a weird phrase. So just, you know, it's the, the name of it. It's not, okay. It, it's like, it's from the world economic forum. I'm telling you, that's where it's from. But I, I think enough people, just the vibe of that caught on that, like, even, even if there was good things in the bill, it just threw way too many 
people off who might be in the middle or kind of like me uh, looking at the other elements of things. So and then, okay, last thing about the Inflation Reduction Act, if in the semiconductor chips, if if they want to. If you want to increase you, Brie, if you want to increase more production of whatever in America, well, it's just going to be a privatized, you know, it's it's not it's not going to be very means of production, if you know what I mean. Like, it's not going to be for for you and me. It's going to be the wealthy military industrial complex, international finance elite like that already exists. And even the whole I'm not down with the Democrats, Green New Deal, anything they want to do with green on it because it's going to be a big privatized giveaway everything they do is yeah i mean the, I mean, it's an interesting question you know why are semiconductors manufactured in taiwan how did that come to pass i i don't know but i can guess <laughs> i can guess that all of it has to do with you know cheaper cost of manufacture because of lower wages overseas and i can guess that if the goal is to induce uh, manufacture back in the united states of america then the way that you do that is to give away tons of money to these companies to induce them to come back so they can still save money by, you know, even if they're doing it back at home, which is what these things are. And there, it does. You raise a good question. Like, why don't we just have national production, nationalized production of some of these goods if they're so crucial to national security? Why just pay off a private company to build something from scratch when you could potentially do it yourselves? have a you know have it done at not with a not the profit but with the profit motive rather extracted especially since so much of this technology is the result of government research in the first instance that then gets taken up and profited off of enormously it's it's an interesting question you're you're in this country nowhere near people's having any willingness to have conversations like that and you just get shouted no yeah i know why why don't we do it because we're ruled by criminals but uh why, you know, why would you want this bill to pass if, I mean, there's no balance of good things that could have in it to me that would validate all that privatization and corporate giveaway? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or anyone on the left. Yeah. All right. But that's all I got. Thanks. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you. Sorry. I was distracted trying to Google the history of how Taiwan came to be the core uh, of semiconductor uh, manufacturer. But I appreciate you calling in. Uh, Carolina boy, what's on your mind? Hey, Bree, can you hear me? I can. Okay, cool. I, uh, I hope you don't mind me like some of your earlier callers can about. Carolina boy? The subject. Carolina boy, you're, you're cutting in and out for me. Hello? Carolina Boy, get back in line, um, and I'll come back to you. I'm also going to skip around just a little bit in line. Uh, Amanda, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Amanda, is that premature? There you go. Hi. It's uh, nice to hear you today. You did catch me a little bit off guard. I really appreciated your... No, no, no. That's all all right. And I don't want to take up a lot of time because you've got a lot of folks that like to call in or have lots of really good ideas. I really 
felt buoyed by the second half of today's show, talking about the Kansas election and some of the deeper lessons to take from what happened. It really made me feel good. So thank you so much for that, because a lot of times it gets very, oof. And I also, <laughs> yeah. So so here comes the so here comes the the critique. So the, so sure. you talk about not wanting to have discourse about the discourse, and you just about <coughs> got to him. You were just about to have the conversation down at the level of me and my bank account. And then it bounced right back up. You almost had him pegged down and it bounced right back up. And I think because you're both comfortable at that 30,000 foot policy level, it, 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 it's easy to lose the thread because there's so many interesting things happening at the 30,000, like the, the do we let go of student loan debt? Do we keep it moratorium going? Do we forgive it? I mean, there's so many good, but, but, you almost had him down to like, so how does inflation actually affect me? Because cause what my, and a lot of that conversation brought me right back, about minimum wage brought me right back to, I was living with a woman who was working 80 hours a week and she was pissed because they the minimum wage in California was going up, but she was already making more than minimum wage and they didn't have to increase her wage at all. So everybody just basically got bumped up to what it took her five years to get to at five cents or 10 cents a year increase. So so the, it's, it's those little details where uh, that person doesn't care about inflation, stuff just costs more. And there was an absence of, the last thing I'll say is there was an absence of talk about controlling price having some control over the corporations. I mean, why is the government not having regulation on companies instead of people? Don't try and control my life. Help help protect me from these corporations and what they're doing to price gouge, you know? Yeah, I hear that. I mean, I so we did do the episode with Richard Wolf all about uh, price gouging. And then there was the follow-up with uh, Fidel Kaboob about whether or not you know, Nixon, you know, the, the critique is, well, Nixon did it and it had, ne you know, negative effects. And Richard Wolf didn't get as much into that, but Fidel uh, Kaboob took on, you know, how to do it in a way that doesn't create those effects. So we did, we did do those two episodes. But I take your point about, you know, the kind of more granular effects, you know, the more like real, I shouldn't say granular, the real world effects. And that, I mean, that's what I was trying to get at with Matt. Ultimately, I could tell. You I know, can tell. Just like say it in normal talk. The way because the way Richard Wolf talks about it, it seems like so obvious. Okay, well, why are prices going up? Why? There's only like two reasons why. It's either because you have a supply chain issue, or because people are intentionally raise and people you know folks raise prices because it's actually harder for them to get supplies, or they're raising prices because there are all these other incentives that are baked into the system, whether it's a private healthcare system, the you know the college system and the federally guaranteed debt and the incentives that creates um, this, you know, the lack of housing supply, the failure to build new houses, the incentives to build luxury houses and not low income housing, all of those kinds of things. And if it's driven by these four sectors, the way that Fidel Kaboob is talking about, and if it's really about just keeping costs low by making things for cheaper, 
why isn't the government trying harder to prevent price gouging and also make it easier for, to make things cheaper because there's more competition. We break up the big meat industries and all of those kinds of things. And, you know, I think that, you know, Matt agreed that those are things, but I don't know, there does seem to be a resistance to talking about it in those kinds of terms. And that, of course, obscures the government's ability to actually do something about those things. Yeah, utterly. And, and by, by looking at the data instead of people's lived lives, you're not, there isn't a particular solution that will fix everything because everybody's individual. We can only just hope to target the greatest majority for the best, right? So yeah. thank you. I really appreciate you. Keep doing the keep the faith. Hey, Kate, Amanda, before you go, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Sure. Um, your your friend or the, your coworker who was frustrated by the minimum wage raise. What, yeah. what would your response to her be? I mean, do you feel like you know there shouldn't be the minimum wage raise? Do you feel like you just kind of sometimes got to hope that there are these residual benefits for people who make just above the minimum wage to get their wages pumped up too. You know, I mean, what is, what is the response to someone who not unreasonably is frustrated that her, her earning power relative to somebody else's is shrunk, even if it doesn't really hurt her in any way for the minimum wage to go up for other people. Well, I think that it makes it, it it makes it a harder thing to do when you're actually facing people. But I, the, it just makes me, I because I thought about it a lot. Obviously, this was actually probably almost ten years ago, and and mm-hmm. I've thought about it a lot since then because it does feel unfair mm-hmm. if everybody else is getting a raise but she's not getting bumped up. But the company goes, but I don't have to bump her up. She's already above minimum wage. Right. So I don't know that. I think it's a question that we need to be that we need to be posing in, when we're talking about about lifting everybody up. I think it's an important consideration that sometimes when you're not connected with people that are making minimum wage, you kind of forget. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Amanda. I appreciate you calling in. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. The faith. All right, Thomas, unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Hi, Brianna. Um, I was uh, sad I didn't get to call into the uh, the environmental episode. So I was wondering if it's okay if I sort of ask a question, make a comment about that now. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I thought it was I thought it was a really good conversation. Um, I didn't really know who Monbiot was before, mm-hmm. um, but I think he is very representative of a significant portion of the environmental movement, mm. which I think is interesting in the way they've sort of become like, I think like I, I would categorize him as like an extreme reactionary. Mm. Right. Because I think, I mean, as, as, at least from a Marxist point of view, right. I mean, his idea is like, okay, no, we have to degrow. I mean, I think I looked up, he has some guardian article where that's like literally the headline is like, there's no green growth like there needs to be less economic activity, right? Whereas like a Marxist would have said like, okay, that's the, the, the potential that capitalism presents as its ability, its industrial capacity, right? Um, that presents the potential then for socialism. And whereas like a normal reactionary, like, I don't know, like a Democrat or Republican might say, well, we need to maintain the status quo 
Mombiat sort of wants to regress to like an almost feudal-ish society, right? Well, what does that look like? Is that really his <clears throat> argument? Well, I think he doesn't see that. Well, I don't, I don't know if he's going to be explicit about that. Some environmentalists are very explicit about like, yeah, we just need to deindustrialize, mm-hmm. which I think is more honest as to like what their, uh, what their policies would lead to. But I mean, if you have less economic activity, that's less jobs, less wages for people, that's like increased global poverty, probably a significantly decreased population because a lot of people are going to starve because now they don't have wages or don't have work. Right. Like this is a real it's a Malthusian argument in a sense. I'm looking at this article. I'm just trying to see if I can put it in his own, his own words. What he actually says. OK, I'm skipping ahead about halfway through the article. The various impacts have a common cause impacts of like there's not a lot of whales left and all that stuff. Um, the sheer volume of economic activity. We are doing too much of almost everything and the world's living systems cannot bear it. But our failure to see the whole ensures that we fail to address this crisis systemically and effectively. When we box up this predicament, our efforts to solve one aspect of the crisis exacerbate another. For example, if we were to build sufficient direct air capture machines to make a major difference to atmospheric carbon concentrations, this would demand a massive new wave of mining and processing for the steel and concrete. The impact of such construction pulses, uh, pulses travels around the world. Sorry, construction pulses travels around the world. To take just one component, the mining of sand to make concrete is trashing hundreds of precious habitats. It's especially devastating to rivers whose sand is highly sought in construction. Rivers are already being hit by drought, the disappearance of mountain ice and snow, our extraction of water, and pollution from farming, sewage, and industry. Sand dredging on, the top, on top of these assaults could be a final fatal blow. Or look at the materials required for the electronics revolution that will apparently save us from climate breakdown. Already mining and processing the minerals required for magnets and batteries is laying waste to habitats and causing new pollution crises. Now, as Jonathan Watts' terrifying article in The Guardian this week shows, companies are using the climate crisis as justification for extracting minerals from the deep ocean floor long before we have any idea what the impacts might be. This isn't in and of itself an argument against direct air capture machines or other green technologies, but if they have to keep pace with an ever-growing volume of economic activity, and if the growth of this activity is justified by the existence of those machines, then that result will be ever greater harm to the living world. Everywhere governments seem to ramp up the economic load, talking of, quote, unleashing our potential and, quote, supercharging our economy, Boris Johnson insists that a global recovery from the pandemic must be rooted in green growth, but there is no such thing as green growth. Growth is wiping the green from the earth. We have no hope of emerging from this full-spectrum crisis unless we dramatically reduce economic activity. Wealth must be distributed. A constrained world cannot afford the rich, but it must also be reduced. I mean, look, uh, it's interesting because I saw I saw a Matt Iglesias tweet today. He was dragging David Sirota, and he was saying, all of these leftists are going to be so disappointed when we figure out how to manage uh, the climate crisis and keep things at survivable levels without actually um, reversing growth and ending capitalism. And I was like prepared to dunk on it. And then I was like, no, Brianna, you have to get ready for Colin. Um, but, you know, is, is, you know, is there something legitimate here about what George is saying that fundamentally, you know, the, the, even the technologies that are supposed to keep us from the worst effects of climate change are destructive in ways that people aren't accounting for. And ultimately we're going to have to scale down. And is that necessarily a terrible thing or is Matt Iglesias right? I mean, I would say it would be, I think it would be a, a terrible thing. I also wouldn't 
saying Maddie Glacius is right. Those are your only options. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, I don't think so, right? I mean, I think where, like, I don't know to what extent capitalism will be able to deal with global climate change. I do suspect that the human race won't end, but I suspect also that people's lives are going to get way, way worse. Um, but the question for at least, or the, the alternative not presented that sort of Mombiat says has to be put on the back burner mm-hmm. is socialism, right? Mm-hmm. Like where then all of society could take responsibility for its actions of creating the world and can then change it, right? And the idea might be, okay, maybe then it's possible to more purposefully and, you know, invest in technologies that will help. Or Mombiat saying, I mean, I don't know that that's necessarily in, in conflict. I mean, it, if, if there's only, if Mombiat is right, that there's only one, there, there, there are like a material limits to how much we can undo without creating more harm or how much we can build to address the climate crisis that isn't also extractive and causing harm. Then all that socialism means, if there are certain scientific realities that we have to confront, certain like limits that we have to confront, then we can so we will socialistically arrive at, at those conclusions and kind of, um, you know, communally decide upon this kind of outcome. But is he wrong about the, the fact that there's no getting around that, continued growth is not sustainable, is not environmentally sustainable. Yeah, I, I think he is wrong. And I think, I think, I think that, I think that is that, that runs counter to the assumption that at least that Marx has, right? The, what he sees in capitalism as this like potential to free, you know, and that the problem with capitalism or one of the problems is it actually like stops human growth it gets in the way right it presents a possibility but then is also at the same time an obstacle and that socialism would unleash you know the full potential and i think the idea there is like under one of the underlying ideas is man's mastery of the world what mambiat assumes is that man cannot have mastery over the world right that we have to submit to nature i mean okay, let's let's be a little more specific it's not that he is just like fetishizing some return to nature and wants to slap on a loincloth and go like scampering through the, the fields of. No, he, he uh, just thinks that's the only option. Or wherever he lives. Yeah. I, but like, I mean, he's saying some kind of specific things here in the context of this article. You know, we, people think that they can build this number of wind plant, uh, solar, uh, I'm sorry, what do you call them? Wind turbines to make up for the energy from fossil fuel burning. But if you were to build enough, like with the technology we have today, we might have some leaps and bounds, but with the technology we have today, if we were to build X, Y, and Z, then it would require destroying X, Y, and Z, you know, A, B, and C habitat. And that is not sustainable. I mean, I mean right, what but I bet that piece of it? I but mean, I bet, how, is, how is socialism getting us past those kinds of limitations? Well, but I bet like, right, if the, if, if the workers were deciding on this, they would, there's two options there, right? Like it's okay. Yeah. Maybe you have to go and like stop, you know, do degrowth or you have to invent new technologies and you have to orient society around the development of these technologies that will save whatever it is, millions and millions of human lives. But I think you don't see George as the kind of person, like given his emphasis on, uh, 
sorry, I always forget the name of this the bacteria farming, but you don't think All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, his emphasis on that sort of thing doesn't suggest that he is the kind of person who is very, you know, encouraging of those kind of technologies that can save us and hopeful that those kind of technologies will save us, but also kind of just trying to be realistic about the cause and effect of some of the technologies that we're currently contemplating are destructive in a way a way that requires us to even if we use those like stagnate growth no i i think yeah i mean i think the thing is i think the basic question is that he doesn't believe that socialism is possible right and so if you don't then maybe yeah you say well look we hope some develop technologies no, get developed but I, what we I need hear, to do i hear you on that and we kind of had our little colloquy about how he feels he's just not a big fan of marx yeah. but it's, it's you and i talking now so socialism being possible, how does that change anything about some of the material reality? I mean, like material, material reality that the materials that we need to build some of the technologies that will save us will likely come as a, at a consequence to the environment at the scale. And this is the important part at the scale that um, would be required if we continue to grow. Um. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Like, I mean, the question... Like, I don't, I don't know what the, I would assume that there are potentials for development of new technologies. Maybe he's right that with existing technologies, there would still be some sort of environmental consequence, in which case, okay, we have to deal with that. Yeah. I, uh, you know, but, you but, for... but, 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 but I don't, I don't think anyone's going to, like, I don't see that idea of like, we have to degrow. Like the thing, the, the, the thing that I'm not worried about is like, that's never going to catch on. Right. Like workers will never say, yeah, I would like to have a worse life. I would like to be unemployed. I would like to have lower wages. I don't know that I'm getting that from what. But, but, but how if you have lower if you if your growth goes down, how do you have more jobs or the same amount of jobs well, or the same amount of money? Degrow in stopping growth. What I just read in that article was that we can't keep having growth <sighs> at these kinds of rates. OK, so let's say you stop growth. How about all the people that are unemployed now all over the world? Well, I would argue that there are plenty of things for people to do if we had a different kind of redistributed redistributive regime, had kind of a more of a universal basic income or minimum basic income idea of how we situated the world and people were paid to do the kinds of jobs that aren't being done right now. I don't think we need growth to have full employment. I think uh, unemployment Uh, is like a choice under capitalism. It's not – we don't have to – we don't have to magically come up with new things. I mean, there are, you know, babies that need to be held in NICUs and there are, you know, graffiti that needs to be scrubbed off of subways and there are classrooms packed with kids that need teachers and there are nurses walking off the job because they're understaffed and there are a million useful jobs that need to be done. But, But there would at least be, right, like a decline in quality of life for like, say, the Western workers, Right. I mean, Why? if you compare the amount of money that they make, it is much higher. Right. This is what they always argue is like, oh, look, well, the Western worker <clears throat> is we can't trust them because they're bought off. Right. And because they're making good wages. I mean, obviously, we know they're not. But if you're just the idea is, oh, we're just going to totally equally redistribute wealth and keep wealth at a static number, which is what stopping growth would be like, that means a lot of people in the West having lower qualities of life. Well, 
like the economics just this, don't work. Well, per, again, I don't know about the economics of it, but per what he said in the article, it was that the rich have to take a hit for this redistributive process. I mean, that's what he literally just, I mean, that was that, that last paragraph. Right. But like he doesn't want, for instance, he wants people to stop flying. Right. So, mm-hmm. okay. So what happens if you have a, uh, uh, a country that relies on tourism? Like, wait, wait, just, wait, wait. like how but, does okay, this work? What, what you're saying now, Thomas, sounds a lot like the people who say, well, we can't have a green new deal because there are people who work in the oil industry. Like, we, we can't have Medicare for all because there's people who work for private insurance industries and they'll lose their jobs. That's what you sound like right now. And that's why we have these ideas of just transition and compensation for people who are doing jobs that are destructive to the future of the planet. I don't know. Like, I also enjoyed Hawaii when I went there for my Hawaiian friend's wedding. But I don't know if the idea of maintaining a tourist industry, like if you ask the average Hawaiian <laughs> who, yes, their entire economy is built in the tourist industry, but how do native Hawaiians actually feel about the tourist industry? Do they wish there were another way for them to be able to support themselves given how expensive it's become to live on the island and how little of their land is accessible to people who actually are from there? Then they would, I think, welcome another way, even if in the short, you know, even if, Yet, you know, they're currently being supported by the tourism industry. Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, my guess is probably not. But even 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 say that. Wait a minute. No, wait a minute. I, I, There's I an entire discourse about how pissed off Native Hawaiians are about Mark Zuckerberg buying half the land in Hawaii. Oh, sure, and sure, they sure. Can't but afford to buy that's not the same as because it's so expensive. That's not the same as cutting off all tourism. The fact that they're like, hey, Mark Zuckerberg's being a jerk does not mean that, like, all Native Hawaiians or a majority want no tourism. Well, no. People don't want no tourism because they can't get jobs otherwise. The whole point, this is to say you have to provide alternative means for people to support themselves. Just like we can't sit around saying, well, I guess ExxonMobil has to keep existing because there's some, you know – administrative assistant who works for Exxon Mobil who will be unemployed if we get rid of fossil fuels like that. How do you resolve that tension? You know that what you're saying is literally the same thing as saying we have to keep fossil fuels because those are jobs. There's no difference. Like I like flying, you know? So it seems, you know, I understand that we, it's easy for us to like make decisions for the fossil fuel industry because it doesn't implicate us, whereas like flying and being able to take vacations implicates us. But we have to be consistent here, Thomas. We can't sit here and say, of course, we've got to divest from fossil fuels. But, oh, gosh, it would be awful if I couldn't go to Tuscany. But but isn't 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 flying isn't like the ability of human beings to get from like one place to another, like extremely quickly to have a more cosmopolitan world inherently a good right? Like, aren't we turning our back on like basically like bourgeois society at that point well, we're saying ah, actually you just got to stick in your own place we have to do everything super local right well, first of all thomas there are other ways to get around that aren't flying uh, i mean yeah but get to another country where you're across the ocean like are you taking well, a ship most other countries are not far away from other countries and people in europe very frequently get to other countries without flying <laughs> it's like not a preferred mode of transportation either but all of that aside it is also true that like some like 80% of all air travel is done by the same 10% of people. I'm making up numbers, but you know, it's something like that. And just because we got in a world where we all rationed the number of flights that we were taking, it would largely fall on a group of people, perhaps that might include you and I, 
but a, a relatively small group of people. And the overwhelming majority of people don't fly around because they simply cannot afford to at the present. You know, George made a kind of joke, which I would argue is not necessarily in good taste, about how people in the Midwest who threaten him with death threats are don't have passports anyway. And that's true. The overwhelming majority of Americans are not flying to leave the country anyway. And I, we should absolutely have high-speed rails that enable people to get around within our country and other places at, at, at much more efficiently and much more cheaply and much more environmentally and also without us having to deal with the effing TSA who don't, don't allow me to pack the hair products that I like to bring with me. <laughs> No, I'm like, I'm all for high speed rail. Great. Like I'm all for it. Um, uh, I've had some very nice high speed rail experiences. Um, but I think the problem here is that socialists used to promise a better future. Now we promise maybe we could keep it the same or like a little bit better. Like there's really no, there's no trans, there's no like positive transformation. In you, you, you are associating the idea with of growth and quotation marks in this like traditional economic sense, like GDP growth is really what we're talking about with the idea of the world not being improved upon and better. And this is, I think not to draw, not to compare you unfairly with, um, you know, Matt Iglesias, but I think this is the same issue that's going on here. I can with the same income that I'm, I have now and the same resources that I have now change my life radically and change my behavior radically. I can decide that living in a apartment building in DC is not, you know, is not the life I want to re- leave for environmental reasons or for cost saving reasons or whatever. And move to a, a cottage in Maryland. I could leave the country altogether. I could go off the grid. I could j- just because you are not, increasing how much money you have or increasing the size of the economy does not mean that you are staying the same or that you are not improving your life. And I think that we need to think differently about what would make a better world. I'm sorry. Yes, it would be a real bummer if I couldn't fly to St. Louis and see my friend who had a baby in COVID that I haven't even met yet, who's like two years old now. It would be a real bummer for me personally, and I would have to take that hit. Also, though, I am looking at I'm not um, internalizing all the costs. And some of those costs is that that two-year-old might not have a world by the time she's my age. And and, and I'm sorry, like, we're doing all of these short-term cost-benefit analysis that are getting us in this horrible climate catastrophe space in the first instance. I don't see how we as leftists are going to sit here and say, it's totally worth destroying the world. (laughs) So that I can go to my friend's baby shower. You're assuming that's the only option, right? You're assuming, again, that the, that the only option is Matty Glacius or, or Mambria, right? It's either we keep consuming as under capitalism as it is, or Mambria's option of, like, we reduce consumption under capitalism as it is, right? I think the question here, again, is, like, the possibility of socialism. Like, is there – socialism Thomas, prevents the possibility is- that you could have – you could keep flying and – no, 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 no. The, the environmental issues could be redressed. Socialism is socialism. Socialism is a magic hocus pocus technology out of the air. Should we be devoting more resources as a community to scientific innovation? Yeah, totally. I think that it would be everything would be more efficient and better done under socialism, but that obviously can be done under capitalism as well. People should be doing that regardless of your economic system. But just because we say, yeah, socialism good, socialism is good for a whole a host of reasons, but it's not it's not that 
deciding we're going to be social is going to magically address all of these other, these other kinds of technological problems. That what George well, they, they, point, they could maybe. No, 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 they, no, no. That's that's just I mean, wishful I mean, thinking. No, not necessarily, right? I mean, if you think about okay, for instance, transition from feudalism to capitalism. There are a bunch of technologies that would never have been developed under feudalism that under capitalism were developed that would have seen absolutely insane to anyone in feudalism thinking, oh, yeah, you're going to develop a technology that solves that problem. You're crazy. That's impossible. Right. So why, if we think that the transition from capitalism to socialism is as large of a shift, is Thomas, it impossible to imagine Thomas, a whole all, world of development that we never would have foreseen? All, all kinds of things might happen. And I can make I can see all kinds of arguments for why socialism creates different incentives for, let's say, more people to go into science, more people to become inventors, because you know, more people have access to education and more people are able to pursue their passion instead of having to toil away in jobs that they would ordinarily be resigned to. I totally understand that there's arguments and maybe magically things will happen. But even under the best outcomes, unless someone invents the replicator from Star Trek, which is what fundamentally enabled people in Star Trek and the Star Trek universe to abolish money and want and all of those kinds of things, the, the replicator changed the material reality of the Earth. The replicator meant you could press a button and an apple would appear in front of you on the microwave out of thin air. Eliminating the need to harvest apples, to grow apples, to employ people to, to buy, to, to make apples. Now, Star Trek makes, allows us, just to, tells us to accept that this is the science. In real life, probably the, 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 the materials that go into that replicator were harvested from some mine by some naked child in Africa who they don't let wear clothes because they're afraid that he's <laughs> going to steal the filaments because that's how the world works. And Under it would have. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there was capitalism in Star Trek before there wasn't, before this replicator changed things. And that's George Monbiot's point, that even under socialism, someone has to harvest that. No, no, but but hold on. In Star Trek, they have the socialist revolution before they develop the uh, the replicator, right? They had, they had World War Three, is what they had. Yes, and then they have a revolution afterwards. Yeah, I, right. it's not clear to me when the replicator was invented, and I don't think it's clear to you, too. Either, but either way, <laughs> regardless of where it falls in the, uh, the the Star Wars, I mean Star Trek canon, my bad. Um, I think the idea is that, like, I don't know exactly the replicator, but something at least somewhat similar. For instance, the highly efficient use of resources. Uh, Lee Phillips, who I think writes for Jackman sometimes, um, <laughs> who I think is worth having on, mm-hmm. is a big critic here, right? Because he's saying, like, look. If you look at what it takes to produce steel today, it uses an infinitesimally smaller amount of resources than it did before. Perhaps we can do that to such an extent. Perhaps. Right? Perhaps. But, but shouldn't that be the today, goal? No, but today is today, Thomas. And we have like five years to, to do the things that are necessary to prevent 2.5 degrees of climate warming. Yeah, but that's not going to happen. No, but today is today. And we're talking about how we should structure policies today with what we know about technology today to get the results that we need to prevent the worst of the worst outcomes from happening. And it doesn't, like, I appreciate that, like, hopefully magic, hocus pocus, a lot of these things will happen. I pray for that too. But George's point is a very different one that I don't think is reliant on whether or not you believe in socialism. 
Because George's point is that today, the kinds of technologies that we need to cut off the worst possible outcomes require us to dredge the sand up from all of the rivers and, and the environmental consequences of therefrom to cause poor children in brown parts of the world to go down horrible mine shafts and, and, and bring back uranium and filaments and semiconductor parts and all of this kind of shit. And that's the reality of the situation and that we should be mindful of that as we think that we can simultaneously consume with abandon and also just just invest in green technologies. Oh, we could just transition to green technologies and there will be no negative consequences. All he's pointing out is that there are consequences even to the green technologies. And until we get alternative technologies, whether through socialism or otherwise, we cannot just wantonly grow when it comes at the expense of nature and the human beings that are forced to provide for this stuff. And who is going to enforce this stop and grow? I mean, does this mean like an increasingly authoritarian state? I mean, it would seem to necessitate that, right? Well, first of all, as someone pointed out in the chat, so much of what we described as our growth under capitalism for the last few decades is a lot of financialization mumbo jumbo. And it's all balance sheet uh, corporate gambling, the likes of which led to the financial crisis. And that's right, but that's not what he... And trades. But, but that's so not what, what he has an issue with, because that's no, there's no, there's not a large environmental cost to that. He means the growth that well, there is actually impacts a huge environment. environmental cost of things like NFTs uh, and crypto. Yeah, to like Bitcoin and stuff. Sure, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, sure. We get rid of Bitcoin. I don't care about Bitcoin. But what what are you calling? What are you calling growth that you feel like? What, what are you saying? Industrial like, production, like the production of items, like like the things that people well, of use. Of course, we have to in stop. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't know. I, like, this is a. I don't think this is that controversial. Of course we're going to have to stop producing a lot of terrible shit. We should not put the cereal in a plastic bag inside of a cardboard box. We should not be doing that. <laughs> you know, we, we, should, we should not be packaging things that we were packaging things. We should not be consuming right, what, the things we consume. We should not be getting little individually wrapped serviettes and forks and knives with our takeout. Like, correct. We have to stop con- producing so much. Right. But there's like, at least for some of that stuff, there's some reason why they do it that way, presumably because it's more cost efficient, it would be my guess. No, I don't know. it's because we're morons. Have you not seen, did you watch, did you watch Mad Men? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that scene? There's a scene in like an early season um, where there's like the family, it's before their family completely falls apart and they're having a picnic somewhere and it's very idyllic and they're like, you know, they're cute little blonde, white, 2.5 kids family on their little picnic blanket. And then at the end of the scene, the camera pulls out. They pack up their picnic stuff, their blankets in their wicker basket, and they leave just trash fully all over the park, just fully <laughs> garbage. Because it was the 50s, and people didn't have this conception uh, that, the, that the world was limited, that the resources were finite, that this trash was all going to build up somewhere. And it was at the beginning of the time when we started overproducing all these paper and plastic pros- products. And I bring that up to say it's because we have this mentality still that there aren't consequences, that, the, that everything will just like crumble back into the dirt and everything is going to be fine. And it's only this really modern phenomenon where we're realizing like you don't get to have maximum convenience just because it's convenient. You're going to maybe have to start packing your own metal straw or your own little foldable plastic fork or just sitting down to have a meal with a fork and knife that you wash and put away. 
Like, we're going to have to live differently, Thomas. Yes, we're yeah. going to have to live differently. But some of those things are like, okay, yeah, you don't have the plastic knife or fork. I, great. I don't care. Um, that's not really, I don't think that, like, that is a huge determinant. Like, I don't think that that's causing most of, like, the environmental damage. No, of whatever, course not. Right? It's, an, it's, a, it's an analogy. But, but you're, you're talking about these big industries that are mining. Yeah. Like the like what what then let's talk about what George is literally like building, talking about. How about building new buildings, building new housing? Yeah, we're gonna have to figure out how to do so in an environmental way. Yes, using materials that are sustainable. Yes, you're gonna have to figure that out. Right, but that's still production, right? That's still that's still growth. Like that's still no. like that counts under GDP. I'm no. sorry, no, it does. The the point George Mom whether it's making, environmental or the, not. The, this is the point I was trying to make about maybe I would not live in a, with the same resources as I have. I could be living a different kind of life. We can make decisions about the kinds of buildings we build and the kind of communities that we live in in ways that are, are, have a mind towards sustainability. We're going to have to start paying attention to the way traditional communities have built cities and houses in a way that naturally cooled. When I was in India some years ago for another friend's wedding, to which I flew, kill me now. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did one of those like tours of the Taj Mahal and various other buildings. And these, some of those amazing, like, um, walls with the mosaic, um, with, the, like, the cutout uh, ge- geometric shapes in them, they were explaining, are to create wind effects that would keep the inside of these buildings in these very hot climates very, very cool. The people, you know, people evolved over thousands of years to figure out how to live in all kinds of environments without the technologies that we rely on today. And we're going to have to figure that some of that stuff out and reinvent the wheel or, or re- rediscover some of that knowledge and live differently. I would call that growth because we're go- even if it's a kind of quote-unquote de-evolution, it's growing in a direction that we need to go. But it is not the kind of growth that you're talking about or if the kind mass- of growth that George Mambio says that we can't do. If you're mass producing it, it's still growth. Like I don't – No, it's like, not. What you mean is the items count? No, it's How is not. it not? Because you're – Are, are you no, not – no. Thomas, it's because you're no longer no, Thomas, because you're no longer building the shitty buildings, and you're now building the good buildings. You're replacing something you're already doing with something that's better, that is at lower cost to the environment. It's change. It's not growth. It's not doing adding more. It's not just doing more and consuming more. It's doing something differently. Right, but we do still actually need more things, right? Like some people need, like if you're like an impoverished person. And I don't know, in like Latin America, you might need like maybe you don't have a place to live, right? Like there might have to be some more things of some things, right? Maybe things that we make in a green way, absolutely for sure. Yes, and there's less but of other things still like Taylor Swift that's still taking flights. <laughs> right, yeah. but the, still and, and it all balances activity. out. That's the point. It, it's not that every single person degrows. It's there are to your point, concentrations of activity that are unproductive, that are not constructed, that are disproportionately hurting the environment, and those things have to stop. And yes, degrow. Even if that's that's the whole point of redistribution, Thomas, that some people get more and other people get less, and it balances out. Right, but socialist politics were never they they weren't they didn't used to be about redistribution. They used to be about like potential. All I would say to you is to stop shoehorning socialism into this conversation. Socialism is great. It's something else. (laughs) It's something else. I don't, I don't think it is. I think, I think if, if 
I think the whole thing about capitalism, capitalism is nothing if it's not the potential for socialism. The world we live in is basically an absolute disaster if it's not the potential for socialism. Okay. So it has to infect. <laughs> it has to infect all of these. It has to be a part of all of these conversations. It has to be. No one's making it not. But what George is talking about, it's like I'm just sitting here trying to say, I, I have a coloring book and I've been instructed to color it in red and green. And you're like, but socialism. And I'm like, okay, great, do socialism. I'm just trying to color this picture. The reality is, George is saying you cannot build solar plants without sand that hurts the environment. And you have to be mindful of that reality and not just say we can build infinite wind plant tunnels. You cannot build infinite wind tunnels under socialism or under capitalism. If you, under any system, come up with a different way to build wind tunnels that doesn't hurt the environment, mazel tov, great. It's a win for us all. Until that time, what George is saying is completely correct under any system that you cannot infinitely build the technologies that are supposed to save us for the climate collapse without it having real effects on other parts of the environment. And you just have to be mindful of that. And I don't personally find that to be especially controversial, even if I can and did push back on some of his characterization of socialism. But I appreciate you mooting this with me, Thomas. This has been an interesting conversation. Thanks for discussing it for um, so long. Sorry for taking all this time. <laughs> Not at all. Keep the faith, Thomas. All right, I'm going to hop around a little bit again. Um, let's try. Uh, let's try Travi. I don't remember Travi. How are you doing, Travi? Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Did I catch you off guard, Travi? Travi didn't know what was um. You did catch me a little off guard, Bree. Bree, oh my God, I can't believe I'm talking to you. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing so well. Actually, it's uh, morning for me. I'm calling from Hong Kong. Hey, cool beans. Yeah, glad to be on the show. Um, How's it I going over there now that um the U.S. military is encircling Taiwan? I know that you're feeling very much under the, the threat. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, the people in Hong Kong kind of look at ourselves and the people in Taiwan and, well, I shouldn't say ourselves because I'm not a Hong Kong citizen. I am an American, but uh, it's just kind of an inevitability. Like, it's such a, a, a huge and unsurmountable task to overcome uh, the Communist Party in China at this point. So, yeah, it's, Has, it's not what's, what's good. What's the chatter been like in Hong Kong about last week's events? Uh, actually, you know what people were in Hong Kong were actually excited about was Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan. They they loved that it was uh, like a loss of face for for the communist government for mm. for Xi. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, it, it's kind of weird because people in Hong Kong actually because of like the statements that Trump made while he was in office, people here actually do kind of support Trump. There are like an odd number of Trump supporters just because of the rhetoric uh, that he put towards Hong Kong. So mm -hmm. really it's not hard for the people uh, in the US government to, to get people in Hong Kong and Taiwan on their side. They just have to kind of say the right things and, and be willing to go out on a limb um, against the, the Communist Party. But I think we both know that they don't want to do that for certain reasons, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. So, so what are you calling mm -hmm. about? 
Well, I called because I have an idea related to your ongoing quest to both unite the left and actually do something concrete to try to gain electoral power or at least significance on the left. Um, you know you. who Grover, <laughs> you know who Grover Norquist is, right? Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if your audience does, but um, I imagine you you mostly know about Grover Norquist because of a document more than what Grover Norquist himself has done. Um, I guess just to give a little bit of explain it, explainer on that for anyone who's not in, in the know, but Grover Norquist basically had a, a document around the time of the 2010 midterms and the Tea Party where he demanded that uh, Republican politicians uh, sign on to say that they will n there's zero chance that they're going to raise taxes. There's not a single thing that, that uh, they wouldn't allow any tax gains whatsoever or yeah, taxes going up. Um, so basically, I just would like to see like a new document created on the uh, on the left that revolves around one major issue. And I think you are, are of a mind with me, Bree, in that you uh, I have identified money in politics as basically one of the if not one of the if not the largest issue uh, kind of facing us in U.S. politics today, because mm -hmm. nothing can really get done until the money in politics is out. Um, so basically make a document where you try to get the politicians to sign on to say, I will not accept corporate or dark pack funds. And then there's actually, it goes a bit further than what Grover Norquist would do, um, because I want to get, I would love to see people get involved too and, and get the voters to sign on and say, I want to vote, but I will not vote for a politician that accepts corporate or dark pack funds. Um, and so I think that this is, there are already lots of people that feel this way and, get the people that already feel this way to sign on and now you have an organized block of voters that politicians can point to and say I want that block's votes uh, so I don't know I just what, yeah. do, what do you think about so something like I'm that? a huge proponent of um, coalition voting of, of block voting and I am a huge proponent of establishing litmus tests that are perceived to be fair by the broad majority of Americans because the litmus tests are based on popularity, uh, on broadly popular, popular populist programs. And, you know, you probably are bringing this up because you saw either my interview with Andrew Yang, my radar about the forward party the day before we interviewed uh, Yang last Friday, or both. And I said on my radar that I think that it's perfectly reasonable to have a big tent um, political party that has both former Republicans and Democrats. I don't see anything inconsistent about that, given how diverse the Democratic Party is and how homeless I feel within it. However, you do have to have some organizing principle that keeps the party, the new party, from being the same as the old two corporate parties from which these uh, swamp creatures <laughs> emerged. And yeah. the litmus test to me, and the thing that fundamentally has caused the Democratic Party in particular to move so far from its stated values, is the corrupting influence of money in politics. And so you have to make that foundational to your effort. And I also threw in the thing about being an anti-war party. They're related, obviously. There's a reason why there are no anti-war parties. Mm. So that has to do with corporate funding or you know, um, military-industrial funding as well. But also I had in mind some of the statements that Andrew Yang made in the context of his New York City mayoral run with respect to Israel. And it does seem to me that there was a lot of populist energy on both sides of the aisle against uh, policies that involve us sending large sums of money to other parts of the world where they're so uh, 
much to be done here at home and when those activities are so pernicious in their intent and effect. So um, I completely agree that like some organizational, some kind of founding party or document is useful, especially because if you have it written down somewhere, then when they come around to you and say, oh, you're a spoiler, oh, you just want to help Trump, oh, you're a problem, da, 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 or like they're doing with Bernie right now, oh, like you're just trying to, you know, shoot down something good, oh, you're an ungrateful leftist, that you can say, I told you what the standards were, I told you what the conditions of my vote were well in advance, and to the extent that I am not voting for you or supporting you, it is because of you, not because of me. It's because you didn't want to meet this very low threshold that would make you even a more popular candidate and more likely to win candidate if you were to fulfill these obligations because we have set the litmus test as a populist one. So when so Bill Maher can't say, oh, the left is being unreasonable. You have to, it has to, he has to make the argument that somehow not taking, taking corporate money is unreasonable or that not supporting a uh, price cap for insulin is unreasonable. And then I think it will become apparent to the public who is actually, in fact, unreasonable. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I think that um, creating this kind of document or pledge, um, it kind of simplifies things for people and that they can, in these arguments, they can say, well, I signed this pledge and it's kind of, the that, that's the beginning and the end of the argument for me. Um, I mean, other people who aren't, of the same mind would probably look at it and say, no, there's so other, so many other different issues that you should be worried about. You can't just worry about money and politics. But to me, it uh, all other issues stem from money and politics, or you know, they're all affected by it heavily. So, I think we're we're we would be right to to stead, uh, stand steadfastly uh, with the pledge if if such a thing were to be created. Yeah, for sure, for sure. By the way, um, um, this mm -hmm. is what the this is the alternative. This is this is the messaging that you're going up against that I think things like no money in politics pledges really help with. I'm looking at the screen. Lori Ingram is on right now talking about the the caption is Biden Biden administration turns on Americans. Selling us out by wasting billion billions more in Ukraine. A year after 13 of our service members were murdered in Afghanistan due to our own generals' incompetence. And think about this tonight. Still, no one has been fired. You think Trump would have ever put away with any, put up with any of this? And if he got back into power, they know he would hold all the right people accountable for what they've done. If the DOJ had a real serious case against Trump that was threatening the republic, they would have charged him months ago. But the word had obviously gone out from the White House that he needed to be punished and he needed to be tormented in any way possible before the midterms. And of course, you can always count on the press, right? To never question the powers that be when the powers that be are Democrat. The Biden White House outside of the actual White House, not in the Justice Department, they didn't know. They were blindsided. They have been how buttoned up and cautious Merrick Garland is, especially with something as sticky as this. It's hard to imagine that they gave the White House a heads up. I do agree. I would be stunned if anybody in the White House, including the president, knew. <laughs> yeah, that's the critical thinking that they do. But the best thing I think is Andrew McCabe, the disgraced former deputy director of the FBI. He was chiming in. And at the standard now, this is wild, it's apparently that if a search warrant is issued, the subject must be guilty. 
The FBI would not have taken a step as drastic and serious as this unless they had good information to indicate that this was the result of some knowing, willful, uh, intentional acts of removing classified documents or sensitive documents, documents in violation of some federal laws. From the man who was a proven liar about his having talked to the Wall Street Journal, who had an obvious vendetta against Trump going back to 2015. Yeah, he's credible. Uh, they're obsessed. They're obsessed with knocking Trump out of the political arena. And it's, look, it's obviously hurt him personally and politically, but this also hurts our trust in our system of government. Because we all see the Justice Department's leadership now for what it is. This is not the image of, the, of Lady Justice operating with a blindfold, but this is a Praetorian guard that shields all of those who hold the real power in this town. Surveillance, subpoenas, search warrants, they're the weapons of choice, which is what they deploy against you when they're threatened by that's fascinating. Like, I'm really loving this. The FBI is bad. Law enforcement is bad. Turn that the Republicans yeah. are doing. If there's, if there's a silver lining, I'm loving this. But this is this is the problem. Like, they are gonna land every narrative punch that they swing. And yeah, I don't I mean, know how to cut through any of this, but for talking about these like really fundamental principles. Like, okay, whatever, running, Trump, whatever. Just... <laughs> what about money and politics? They're, they're running cover for Trump, and the common wisdom is they don't start ransacking your home until they're ready to move forward with something. And then you hear her saying, oh, they, they wouldn't have done any uh, – they would have done something a long time ago if they had any smoking gun, if they had any evidence. Well, no, this is now the time where they're displaying that, yes, they do have that smoking gun and that evidence. So I don't know. All they can I mean, really they do might. Is, Look, I don't trust the FBI. They – like – I, I, don't, I don't know if there's something here or not. We'll find out. I do think it's wrong to kind of presume that there's a there there until there's not. I don't necessarily know that I buy the idea that Trump, that sorry, that Joe Biden wouldn't have been knowledgeable. I, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I truly don't know. Um, so, so we'll see what happens. But like, I, I, I do take your bigger point, um, Travi, and yeah. I, I hope that people can continue to, 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 to focus on those bigger picture issues. My concern, though, is that um, people's takeaway from a moment like this is to say, oh, let's just not be partisan. We need a middle, a middle way and then fetishize the idea of the Ford Party yeah. being just the nice guy party. Well, that's, that's what I like the idea of this pledge is that you could it's, – it's definitely not partisan. So you, anyone who's not interested in, in having money in politics, I think plenty of, of Republicans and plenty of independents can get on board with that notion. Um, and it's like a coordinated block. Um, it doesn't have to be a coordinated block. You don't have to say, oh, if I'm signing on to this, I'm going to vote for a Democrat. You can vote for whoever you want as long as they don't take any corporate money. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Um, and just one other thing, um, a new strategy for relitigating 2016 with shit libs. Do whatever you can to direct the conversation to the Electoral College and then ask them, uh, whoever you're arguing with, if they even know what the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is. Because usually people just want to blame the voters. And there's this thing out there that could completely overturn the Electoral College without Congress doing a thing, turn it on its head. And uh, I just don't see anyone really talking about it whenever it's already a good way of the ways to getting passed. So shout out to the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Okay, I'm going to have to look into that, Travis, but thank you so much for calling in. Hey, no problem.
uh, we'll talk to you later. All right, we'll talk to you later. Michael, you're going to be on deck, but before you come on, um, here's just something from Current Affairs magazine about the new climate bill uh, and it being a boon for the fossil fuel sector, sector, quote, under the bill, the Interior Department would be required to offer up at least 2 million acres of federal land and 60 million acres of offshore acreage to oil and gas producers every year for the next decade. If they fall short, they wouldn't be able to advance some permitting aspects of the wind and solar projects on federal land. It would be the first ever required minimum acreage for offshore oil and gas leasing and significantly increase the acreage requirements for onshore leasing. It would also revive Biden's outrageous failed attempt to carry out the largest oil and gas lease sale in the country's history, that the judge had blocked earlier this year for failing to properly account for the disastrous climate impact. Uh, it is, it's, quote, a, a re- renewable energy revolution on top of a fossil fuel build-out, says some, this quoted person, Noel. Others were less polite, calling the proposed pairing deranged and madness. Brett Hartle, government affairs director at the CBD, called it a climate suicide pact. It's not hard to see why. Long after the bill's announcement, an Associated Press invest- investigation was published revealing that hundreds of lease sites in the Permian Basin alone are every hour leaking between hundreds and thousands of kilograms worth of methane, a greenhouse gas, dozens of times more planet boiling than carbon dioxide. Completely gone, too, is any funding whatsoever for high-speed rail and public transit. That's where we are on that. Also, update, Ron DeSantis is tweeting about the raid. He said the raid of Mar-a-Lago is another escalation in the weaponization of federal agencies against the capital R regime's political opponents. While people like Hunter Biden get treated with kid gloves, now the regime is getting another 87,000 IRS agents to wield against its adversaries, Banana Republic. All right, Michael, what's on your mind this evening? Hey, Bree, good to talk to you. Um, Same sorry. here. Same right. here. Um, not as coming directly on the climate specific piece, although I did also really love. Um, the last episode uh, from Thursday on it, as well as um, I know uh, Dr. Vijay Prashad had sort of generally alluded to sort of how to mobilize folks and that, um, I don't know, that I've sort of in my head been kind of thinking about those things in tandem, like climate, but also separately, like successful um, kind of quote unquote revolution stories in the last two years around the globe. maybe not necessarily taking the same angle as Thomas per se, um, but I do definitely, I agree with the notion, right? Like in, infinite growth is not what we're looking for. That su- such a thing should not exist, even if it could, it's probably a, a bastardization of nature that we should not explore. Um, if sci-fi has anything to warn us about that. Mm. Um, but anyways, that aside, Uh, My main reason for calling was I had, I think in last Thursday or the Monday call in, um, seen a couple of people talking about just like, and I think you also mentioned sort of being interested in where we are as it goes to transportation and sort of what uh, kind of some of the IRA funding that's been bookmarked for transit could look like. And I have some suggestions. Mm, Please. So first is a Yona Freemark. Um, He is an executive research fellow, research director, something at the Urban Institute. 
um, and is also based in your area. He's in DC. Um, and he's been writing focused uh, pretty squarely on public transit, but also with this kind of like housing as a human right um, lens. And also the Urban Institute has a lot more um, climate conscious like policy advice, I think based off of kind of some of the work of their leadership. So I definitely think that would be um, specifically on the question of like, what do we do with busing high rail um, especially exurban and rural areas that have like traditionally underutilized um, public services, even though they have longer, um, longer trains and uh, utilization, like in a mileage perspective. I don't know. There's a bunch of interesting articles that he's written on the Urban Institute website. So it's the main, um, and then also just some Twitter folks, um, Jamie Jin Tra, Mi Jin Tra, who is I think a professor, Occidental. Um, and sort of would be able to bring more of like the climate justice piece. Um, and then just some folks that I saw like also I think are mutuals for you are like Thea Rio Francos, um, who I know is tapped into the climate space and also Johanna Bozua, who's been on the pod before. Um, and then the last one would be Carlos Manji, Manje, M-O-N-J-E, mm-hmm. um, who is a deputy with the Department of Transportation. Um, I think like a number four, number five there um, and seems like a calm person. So maybe if you wanted to sort of go the more like, what is the policy question route? Um, yeah. So I can just run through those names again if you need. But that was amazing. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I was taking notes throughout in my Slack channel. Um, nice. And I will follow up on Iona Freemark, uh, Mijin Cha, Fiore Franco's, Johanna Boza, which has been, who's been on, uh, Bozwa, Carlos Manji. Yeah, I think that's everyone, right? Yes, yes. Um, and then, oh, also, and a YouTuber. Uh, yeah, the Wendover Productions folks. Um, Sam Denby. I don't know if you have, like, any random questions or thoughts literally on the specifics, specifics of train or, like, com- uh, comparisons of methods, methods and modes of transport, and especially um, in Europe. He just did, like, a video that went viral last month um, for the Wendover Productions channel, but it's sort of like his like personal meme is that like he just loves trains and like transit. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, that was the main thing. All right, thank you for that, Michael. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling in and thank you for the recommendations. Anytime. And all then right. um, all right, yeah, let, let's just keep moving. <laughs> okay. Did, did you have Great. something specific else? Um, what was it? Uh, I wanted to. I was still thinking about the questions of sort of like post the norm discussion or some of the other debates, like how do we continue to navigate like language and when to engage, when not to engage, what are, what's the utility of things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have any just general thoughts on how you feel like any of the last few kind of call in or actual episode engages have gone where you sort of feel like this language of you know, team sports, American politics, and like what, um, what the angle is, because I, I do still agree with the, the notion of like, try and pivot to something that's more principled than fundamental. But it does feel like there's, I don't know, um, it, I think there's enough consciousness now in people, even just like in general, like life, that when it feels like somebody's looking for like dunking points, even people that aren't really politically invested can kind of see that it's an attempt to like dunk. And that it kind of like leaves people uncertain, even if the quote unquote 
you know, dunk is landed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't exactly know like how, right, as a leftist or just in like every day, I've got 30 seconds to chat with you. I'm standing in line at the grocery store. Like, how do you flip somebody on, you know, them trying to talk about their great Hawaii vacation or them trying to, you know, be be incredibly grateful for the, the or, or overly gratuitous in, in uh, gas prices coming down, these types of things. So no real question there, but just thought. All right. Well, thank you, Michael. Short answer is I don't think much is going to happen in 30 second conversations, but I appreciate you calling and I'll give it some I'll give it some more thought. Right. And then one last thing to throw into the chat as well as like ideas to move forward. Um, I do agree with the dark money pack um, from Travi and that actually could be something that I think a lot of even like establishment Dems as well as uh, kind of the cohort you mentioned and leftists could definitely sign on to at any level of federal, state and local participation, which is really what we need. Like to sort of instantiate a block that is not gonna play this dark pack money game with people. Um, but another thing that I have been thinking about and that would be great to ask if you can during that transit episode is sort of what um, the kind of map of the country looks like in response to the way transportation spending has evolved uh, because of COVID. Um, because from some of, I don't know, just my kind of anecdotal Evidence living in Connecticut, where New Haven County kind of did a lot with using COVID money to um, create fair holidays and other things like that. I do think that that could be also a more like real world material action. Um, however, we frame it or whatever the kind of best route to pursue is. But I think a lot of folks who have historically not necessarily needed or um, seen well funded transit have in the last three years. And there's always been a longstanding relationship between transit workers, workers, language and labor movements generally, and like particularly people's access and whether they feel like, um, I think it was also on your show where you mentioned this idea of who nobody wants to pay for transportation twice, we're already paying for it in taxes, why are we paying for it at the turnstile? Um, And I think that there is definitely something to be said in that it has been in kind of these like urban bastion areas where they kind of are already making enough privately on transportation or public-private transportation networks that for these also be the places that so effectively um, kind of streamlined COVID money earmarked to do things like, you know, relieve infrastructure so essential workers can get to work and stuff like this sort of created these, what I suspect to be really drastic changes in ridership and just overall satisfaction with public transit. So that could be a question for that panel. That's all. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Um, all right. Uh, how about Nick? What's on your mind, Nick? Can you unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind, Nick? Or... Hey, Bree. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. What's on your mind this evening? Um, I just really wanted to thank you for the, uh, environmentalism episode. I know that, uh, You've said that those don't get the clicks that other episodes do, um, but I think this conversation is really important, and I I really appreciated the conversation. Um, uh, I liked what the guest said about um, road blockades and um, those kind of actions. I was almost talking myself out of the uh, efficacy of those, um, and I think he made a really good argument for it. But uh, I thought his critique of Marxism was really, really shallow. Mm-hmm. And um, his total focus on 
individual consumer choices, uh, I think was, was really, really disappointing. Um, I know you've been really um, uh, generous about taking recommendations and um, I wanted to recommend a couple um, Marxist thinkers on the topic. Uh, one is Andreas Malm. Uh, mm -hmm. You probably heard of him. He wrote the uh, book, um, How to Blow Up a Pipeline and Fossil Capital, which are really incredible uh, manifestos for the movement right now. Um, the other one is this book I just started by uh, Matthew Hubber, uh, Climate Change is Class War. And it has a really amazing critique of that uh, individual focus of um, trying to change things through consumer choices. Mm. Um, I, I was vegan myself for five years mm -hmm. and uh, only dropped it after I kind of let that idea go that uh, we were going to change the world through the things that we were individually buying and consuming and eating that you know we really don't have the power in the situation as consumers, the producers do. Um, so yeah, those are my thoughts. Yeah, well, I, th I appreciate you calling in, Nick. The thing about, it's the same with the conversation with Thomas, the thing about being vegan is like, I would love it if someone made me do the right thing. I find it difficult and a little frustrating to be told that like, the right thing, the stakes of it being what they are, comes down to individual choice and individual free will. It's kind of like, I feel like eating meat and, you know, using plastic bags and all of that. It's like, it's like handing me a key lime pie and saying, Brianna, don't eat it. <laughs> it's completely there for you a hundred percent of the time. Like I will, when you moved to this apartment building, it meant that there was at all times a key lime pie refrigerator sitting in the lobby. But, like, I'm just trusting you not to ever have a bite of key lime pie. And for my own dietary practices, I would really prefer not to have the temptation of the key lime pie. But it seems insane that you just, like, handed me this loaded gun and expected me not to shoot it. Um, and I know that sounds a little, like, not wanting to take responsibility for things. But there are a million and one things like that. Like, they, we know we won't save for ourselves, which is why we have Social Security. We know that, like, rationally when you're confronted with these short-term expenses that seem very exigent at the time, it seems worth it to, to pay instead of saving off from some retirement you don't even know you're going to get to. And that's why we have designed society in order to create better incentives for us and make things, the bad things like a little bit harder to do. And I don't know, maybe that sounds like I want a nanny state or something, but like I really do wish I wasn't given the option to put, the pre-wrapped fork and knife into my bag because I still do it even knowing that it's wrong. You know, I still sometimes think, right. I don't want to wash dishes today. Let me just use this plastic knife. You yeah. know, and the consumer choices we have didn't just arise, arrive naturally. Like the, the cost of, of beef or whatever, isn't just like a naturally arriving thing that we got without any government intervention. Like it came with like, you know, any number of farmer uh, subsidies and, you know, the fact that you have to give so much grain in order to feed an animal up to the point that it can be slaughtered for meat. Like mm -hmm. the, the true cost should be, should be much, much higher than it is. And um, yeah, if, if we had uh standard policies and a more democratic system and, you know, if we were able to take control of those industries, we could uh, 
make them reflect a more realistic cost and uh, be able to get give people the choice to um, yeah make, yeah make better you know, decisions environmentally of, I was thinking of so like a few years ago my mom like sent me a couple of boxes of like really basic silverware because she felt as though I didn't have enough silverware uh, and it's like real ugly and basic and I've been really <laughs> wanting to upgrade my silverware situation for years now but I feel like I can't because it's so wasteful that I have like a completely unopened box of this silverware that my mom sent me plus the one that I have opened in years and I was thinking like all the silverware that's been created over the history of the last like even just 50 years of like mass, mass production 60 70 years of mass production you could probably put full-on silver silverware in restaurants if you had a good silverware deposit reclaiming system set up <laughs> you know like at this point we just have so many of the things it's weird to, to still feel like we need to have disposables when we've it's like i love how the gen z kids are like all about thrifting and like making their own clothes and stuff because there's this sense that like we've gone through every style cycle and whatever kind of cut of jean you want or top you want it exists like we're in the 70s moment right now like you can just go and get the 70s stuff and everybody's buying vintage furniture and it's like it all exists already and that's kind of the beauty of not like the growth and you can only have one child sort of a way but in a you know like creating systems that make it easier for us to access the things that already exist that make it easier for you to donate your furniture and have it rehabilitated and people who open stores that reupholster clothing as opposed or reupholster furniture instead of making it new a whole. Like I really like the brand reformation, you know, it's pricey, but I like that. It's all, um, what do they call it? Um, like, uh, overstock fabric or like, um, whatever they fabrics that they made too much of like decades ago that they, you, they just cut into new, new clothes. Like, and it's a sustainable brand. I like, I like that notion. And, and again, I just that's, that's that's just me saying I don't think not growing in the traditional ways that we think of mean an end to innovation. You know, there's mm -hmm. just a lot out there already that we've made, and it's great. And I I I would like us to figure out ways to have better access to it instead of it being shipped shipped off to landfills because it's like when you're moving and you don't feel like dealing with how to get rid of your desk, you just throw it away, you know, I, or leave it on the side of the the curb. I just I just wish we could innovate in those kinds of ways anyway sorry uh thank you nick i appreciate you calling in thanks keep the faith keep the faith holden what's crack a lacking what's on your mind uh hey hey brie how you doing hello holden? can you hear me i can hear you doing what's good <laughs> okay what's uh on your mind well this evening? i'm uh, not much. I'm happy I tuned in today. There's a lot of talk of degrowth, and I happen to be a huge degrowth advocate. Okay. Um, yes. Okay. So, uh, what's your argument? To I'm uh, uh, okay. Um, well, I'm with uh people who are for a resource-based economy, and uh, we're not just about like a world without capitalism. We're for a world without money. Mm. So, uh, um. I think the best way of putting it is uh, we go through industrial logic rather than business logic. And in business logic, you know, you got to get keep the GDP going. You got to keep these plates spinning. You need a uh, high turnover with labor. You need uh, like low durability 
Toshi, hush. Sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you need high turnover of labor and material. Um, with uh, industrial logic, you want high durability and you want uh, at, um, at need labor. You know, not the need to be constantly, constantly employed regardless of what the circumstances might call for. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could use my own job as an example, mm-hmm. you know, um, I work in a wood furniture factory. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm one of the last people who work in a factory in this country. And uh, I'm punching out wood furniture all day. Mm-hmm. And all I can think of is the, you know, cedar sofish. All I can think of is the cedar swamps that were desiccating and the hickory swamps that were desiccating. Every day I got to clean out all these bugs out of the wood. So we're going off ham on the bugs as well. Um, hey, hold on. I, I really want to hear you because you're, you're like very interesting. But you're just you're breaking up a little bit. I'm not sure if you can move around to be clear again. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. And uh, so... In my job, um, it would become seasonal, right? I, uh, I don't have to be building beds all year round. I uh, build beds when the conditions call for it, you know? And it doesn't necessarily mean that we don't have to completely cease the lumber injury or industry. I said injury out of uh, Freudianism, by the way, because it's very dangerous. So um, the most dangerous job there is. Uh, anyway. So, yeah, that becomes steel work, and I... Hey, Holden, I'm so sorry, I'm having trouble... Holden, Holden, I'm having trouble hearing you. Is there a way you can try moving to a different spot, or... Um... Oh, that's better. Yeah, sure. This is better? Okay. Yeah, that's better. Uh, So, yeah, that becomes seasonal work, and, um, uh, which opens me to do other work if I want, or not, if I don't. Um... And, uh, so, okay, and, um, I also wanted to, uh, I've been also wanting to talk about, like, organizing specifics, you know, um, ever since Force the Vote, which, by the way, huge, uh, appreciation for everyone who was involved on that, you know, I was dubious about, uh, electoral politics already, and then, you know, I was big on Force the Vote, it didn't work out, and that gave me, like, a opportunity to do a hard break. Um, so organizing specifics under, um, to achieve like a resource-based economy, one without money, one where you could degrow and it won't, uh, destroy everyone's livelihood. Uh, I think time banks are a really practical, um, really straightforward way that you can engage with your community, be productive, be practical, and, uh, kind of work your way out of the monetary system. Hey, Holden, um, hey, yeah. you're breaking up again. Oh, okay. Uh, have you heard of time banking before? No, what's time banking? Okay. Um, that's a, an, organi- it's an organization where one hour of work equals uh, one you know, time credit. You, know, you can make change with minutes, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and uh, so under a time bank, you can do what you want because the wage isn't the important part. Like the thing that you're doing is the important part. 
and um, there's lots of stuff people could do, especially environmental activism, right? Um, you could uh, make time credits I, by. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, Holden. I'm getting like 60% of what you're saying. Uh, this is horrible. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, no, I know it's not your fault. It's, it happens sometimes. When you moved around before, you, you cleared up. Okay. I'm not sure. Um, well, let me go to the porch and I will. Alright. Is, uh, is that better? Mm, Hello? Not really. Okay. Uh, should I just try again later or maybe next episode? Um, no, I think I'm. Sure, but like I, I can like sort of hear you. But like, if you're just generally saying, I think I got your point about time banking. Is that okay. you're 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 credited for how much time you spend working and not the like substance of what you're doing. There's no like salary. It's about you know so that so that you can also work the hours that you need to work, and you're not people aren't forced into doing work just to be busy to do busy work, and, and recognize that there's a cyclical nature to the kinds of things that are being produced. Um, yes. So I, I take that point. I, I, I don't know. I'd have to have to hear from some other people about well, uh, can, I, um, can I give some examples of things that have been uh, done through time banks? Um, sure. But, okay. And great podcast, if anyone ever wants to listen to it, is the Time Banks podcast. They're short. They're like seven minutes a pop. And uh, each one of them is the story of a exchange on a time bank. Um, one of uh, one of them was the woman who got a free loaf of bread every week through the time bank, and you know I can't remember exactly what it is she did in uh, return. Could have been that she made mittens. Could have been that uh, she cleaned someone's butter. Could have been anything. Um, there's a, a mother and daughter who. Both were giving uh, cooking classes, teaching people to make pierogi, and uh-huh. they had this. Uh, so they were doing this on the regular, and um, they had this ancestral house that was all uh, beat up, dilapidated, and through labor from the time bank, they got that place renovated and livable, and uh, you know they had a place to live. And um, in Ohio, in the uh, Kent Community Time Bank, they have something called the uh, the Socially Responsible Sweatshop, is what it's called. And uh, mm-hmm. a group of people who have their, um, you know, their sewing machines, they're making clothes for homeless folks, and, uh, but they're not volunteering. And this, this is another huge advantage I want to went out of a time bank. It's not volunteering. It's not like work that comes out of your day that uh, it's like more work that, you know, um, it's immediate return. You know, whatever you're doing activism, it's very delayed return at best or maybe never. Hey, Holden, I, I'm really sorry. I'm just having such a hard time talking to you. If, if you had a quick point to wrap up, I could try to decipher it, but I think this is just a little too much to, to wade through with the, with the um, the bad quality audio. It's not your fault, but um, okay. if someone else ha- knows something about time making and then wants to call in and say something, I'll, I'll, I'm here. I'm happy to hear it out. But I appreciate you calling in, Holden. Yeah. Okay. Um, last uh, I guess the last thing I'd say is if uh, 
Um, the- oh, hold on. I'm sorry. It's just it's so okay. difficult to hear. I, I really got to move on because I, I wanted to actually end at 1030. And I'd oh, like sure. to end on like a, a call that people can kind of engage with. I, I appreciate oh. you calling in. Thanks, Holden. Okay. Yeah, you got it. Uh, Have a nice evening. All right. Thank you very much. You too. Take care. Okay, Clifford, you're going to wrap us up for the evening. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. Oh, um, thank you. Uh, could I just uh, second, or not even second, but many people have said uh, that environmental episode was much appreciated, and um, and I really enjoyed it. I thought uh, that was the first I had heard of strategic or precision fermentation. And uh, is my audio quality sufficient? Yeah, you're Can good. You hear yeah, me you're good. Okay, sorry. I... I only have one bar, so I wondered if it wouldn't be. Um, but uh, yeah, the uh, that uh, precision fermentation, just the fact that it could lead to, like, essentially what uh, what long term, like, and I kind of look at. It, I also really love Star Trek, and I kind of look at it of the same way of like this kind of technology. Um, you know, I was a little bummed on the call in just because you were saying stuff about like my eggs, like not getting to eat eggs and stuff, mm-hmm. rather than. I thought you'd be really excited about just because it does kind of remind me of something like that technology you were speaking of earlier, like the replicator, like something that basically it's the closest we can get to digital production of food. And it's so it can be done on such a small scale and could be such a threat to big capital like uh, solar panels will be like you'll see that Wall Street Journal headline where they're like the one problem with solar is it's it's going to eventually drive prices down into the negative because it's going to just there's no way to limit the sun you know and it's the same with this it's just like imagine if everyone had like their own way to produce their own proteins and like and just like we could make whatever with it and just like food and all this land use was then rewilded and and it wouldn't even be like this big tree planting program or anything like that but um so i just really enjoyed the episode thank you so much um but the- i'm glad and by the way i'm not i'm not negative on farming it's it's just i mean i i don't think the gag is i don't think the contention is we're exclusively going to eat ground up bacteria flour the contention is that it's yeah. part of a diet it replaces some of the foods that are so bad to manufacture. Right, right. And and so, and I also have, from a nutritional perspective, some skepticism about the, its ability to truly replace all of the foods that we evolved over hundreds of thousands of years to be able to eat and be compatible with what our bodies need to be healthy and thrive. So sure, the same can. way that you can't survive on vitamins and cans of beans, the way some vegans try to do, you have to really be careful and make sure you get all the things your body needs. I suspect that eating just one kind of non-diverse protein powdered based food is not going to give you everything that you need either. Eggs happen to be a very complete nutritional source that I also think is not ethically compromised from a killing animals perspective because it's an egg and I don't think ovulation is murder. And I think can be done more sustainably than a lot of other things. That is my pushback about eggs. That's all. Sure. Yeah. I well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I I do think spending a bunch of time on it, even though I agree with everything you said, and I think that the big thing will be that this technology challenges power. It challenges the capital that's been concentrated so 
like disgustingly into so few hands that is uh the uh you know the meat industry that's like deforesting the amazon at mm-hmm. you know two football fields every second or whatever it is you know like it's uh it's really it would just be the kind of like the death blow to something like that to have that mm. be democratized and be just so much more affordable to so many places on earth so that uh all that land would be cultivated. it wouldn't be the thing that would then you know exterminate all meat and all egg production and all that stuff but yeah but just what it would do to power and how it would challenge power and that's why it was kind of the whole con it it does feel like we sometimes devolve into this thing of like oh well i don't really want to go vegan but it's like we won't even get a chance to even talk about being forced to go vegan or anything like that until we spend all of our time kind of like talking about what concrete methods could we do to uh, challenge the 1%. Like the episode kind of started with like this uh, dichotomy of like the actions that are protest actions by Extinction Rebellion or others that um, they affect the working class. And I was hoping that one of the, you did such a great job with the questions today in today's episode too. I was thinking like, oh, I'm so glad you're there to push back on all this inflation stuff and just bring up the Richard Wolf and all that stuff. But, and that was the same thing I was expecting maybe with the environmental, like, well, if, if these things target the working class, can we, uh, what target the 1%, you know what I mean? How could we tap Mm -hmm. into the right wing the right wing has such an appetite, like people probably don't want to talk about it, but for the revolutionary tactic, like they're storming buildings, they're like blockading things with trucks and all this shit. Like, what could we do that we could all be united on that if it was aired on the media, it would be unquestionably like targeting power. Like, can you imagine if it was like a sweep of like blockading yacht ports and helipads and all this stuff. And like, imagine what that would look like on the media, on the corporate media, you know, like what pundits could you get to talk about the fact like, maybe all these people are scared that they can't have children because the world's going to be fucking uninhabitable. And yeah, they're blockading fucking yachts. Like, excuse me, like, how are you going to defend that shit? You know what I mean? Like, well, uh, un- unfortunately, Peter Kalmus, you know, who's been on the podcast, uh, yeah, has, that. you know, blockaded and tied himself to JP Morgan Chase bank outlets. Yes. Chase has, JP Morgan has uh, apparently contributed more or invested more in fossil fuel right. than any other bank in America. And I, I'm not saying that the coverage is, oh no, poor JP Morgan, but it definitely isn't rah rah Peter Kalmus. It's more, oh, here goes just another crazy environmentalist. And, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking at the way conservatives are now framing the FBI as an organization that is weaponized against people's political enemies in a way that I don't disagree with, obviously, given the whole history of revolutionaries being killed by them in the United States (laughs) of America. And, you know, it's like kind of like, why can't we get that message across when, you know, they're killing Breonna Taylor because she's living. And did you see this story that apparently she lived in the middle of some housing development gentrification project and her hers was a block that like wasn't was holding out. And they basically they killed her, and then her house for went up for sale, and they bought it for a dollar. And people are saying that there had been routine harassment by the police in this neighborhood to try to force these last people out, and that was all a big, you know, that the you know the state is always an arm of these capitalist endeavors. Well, why can't we make that case convincingly to Republicans? Well, because they don't care. You know what I mean? It's it's 
if we if we did this exact same thing that they're saying now, the FBI is really just a political, you know, the police are weaponized for political ends, for material, you know, for capitalist ends, for these kinds of things. It doesn't, they don't actually care, like, they don't actually care. They'll drop this argument tomorrow when it's not being, you know, when, when the police are good again because they killed some, you know, black person or whatever. So I, I don't know, like, it's it's difficult. It's it's difficult because they fund. I mean, I do think that the the change, the ideological change, has to happen on a deeper level with folks because there is so much priming to like love the cops, and there is so much priming to to default to law and order, um, and that to extent that there are these faults and de- deviations away, it's not. I don't know. I don't know how long lasting it'll be. But maybe maybe I'm being defeatist. Maybe this is an opportunity to really try to dig in and agree with Republicans on the FBI and get them to like take a position that they won't be able to renege on so easily. And it's the same with this this climate stuff. I I do think that <sighs> I don't know. People are just people don't either either you're doing something that doesn't have that big of an impact, like just chaining yourself to a building, or you're doing something that has a bigger impact, like harming the building, setting the building on fire, breaking yeah. people's windows, and people very quickly become unsympathetic. Right. But, um, and I I totally agree, and I know your thing is about optics, so I, I was trying to think about, or messaging, I mean, like, and, and that kind of thing, and I so I was trying to think about, like, how that could be, like, universally, like, something that people would see on TV, and they would just kind of, like, they would fist bump or something about it, because they're just, like, yeah, that was a good move. Like, honestly, like, like if uh, when Jeff Bezos was trying to get his super yacht or something out of uh, whatever the Netherlands or something, you know, and they they wanted to, like, deconstruct a bridge, like a historic bridge for that shit. Like people were talking about, like, you know, egging it and like throwing fucking rocks at it and just stuff that like like everyone knows that the person who would be hated in that situation would be the elite fucking out of touch, just like insanely out of touch person so something like a string of you know like inconveniences to the most powerful people on earth just that something that's optic like i i understand now like a bank headquarter thing maybe isn't that message you know what i mean but something that like imagine if you could only block traffic i mean block traffic that was only billionaires you know what i mean just something that the common person would just be like fuck yeah you know like everyone would be on board for that you know like um i i just like if something like that could be found that would be great but man i want to respond to one thing you just said and i talked too much and then i forgot but uh but uh yeah it was something about um it was right after you sighed you said uh it was like um oh bummer i'm sorry i forgot but uh yeah um if it comes back to you go ahead and write it in the chat i see that the last caller put some recommendations about time banking into the chat and i appreciate that i see i think some cc um some um uh what do you call it co-signing from jonathan always good to see you in the queue jonathan i'm sorry i didn't get to you today um but i will get to you next time Thank you, everybody, for calling in as always. I was going to play you out to some music, but I forgot to type. I forgot to cue them out. So I will play you out in a little bit of this Fox News coverage. And um, I'm sure we'll be talking about this on Rising tomorrow. Don't forget to tune in and you know press like on my radar so I can prove that we 
leftists can get these small victories on these kinds of platforms. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Um, I really enjoyed your commentary today. Keep the faith. So they're willing to break this unwritten rule, or basically break it, as it relates to Trump. But they couldn't do it with Hillary or, remember, the Anthony Weiner thing. And, I mean, Hunter Biden, you can't look at Hunter Biden now. So, again, it stinks. This just doesn't pass the straight face test to someone who used to do white-collar criminal defense. Yeah, I've had my wings clipped with that that unwritten rule, if you will. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't know where that rule came from. If there's a violation, there's a violation. But it seems to be what we call situational ethics, where it depends on who you are these days. Well, Chris, we really appreciate it. And um, I want you to hear what a former U.S. attorney said. I need you to chime in on this. Um, this was earlier tonight on MSNBC. There's a really big point, Alicia, that I'm not sure others have uh, focused on to date. The, this is by far not the, one of the biggest crimes he's been charged with, but it carries the penalty that someone who's convicted of it is disqualified from running for future federal office. So 18 U.S.C. 2071, if he destroyed records, they may have decided to go after this, disqualify him from future office, secure a conviction, and have that be the broad resolution of the whole problem Trump. Chris, he just kind of revealed what a lot of us think is the DOJ's entire strategy, take Trump off the political playing field. And he, he's like salivating when he says it. This isn't even, this is an open secret at this point. I can't believe that soundbite. Yeah, out of the mouth of babes, I mean, the truth comes <laughs> out. And that's what just happened, I think. I mean, Chris, again, as someone who's at the DOJ for 25 years and you're a consummate professional, I know I'm infuriated. You're obviously incredibly uh, upset about this, but all the people who did great work at the FBI, I feel bad for them uh, tonight as well. But thank you for coming on tonight. I do too. Now joining me thank now you. is Fox News Chief Washington Correspondent Mike Emanuel. Mike, what can you tell us? What's the latest? Laura, good evening. Sources familiar tell Fox News. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian in late night sitcoms syndicated on TV land. Wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help is like it's like I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this.